Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, yoga instructor, Kirtan Smith. As trite as it may sound, few things have been more central to my wellness in the last 16 months than yoga. Trauma, like a pandemic, and chronic stress, like a difficult workplace, can maladapt the central nervous system, overriding the frontal lobe, lighting up the emotional brain, and setting the limbic system into constant fight or flight. This hypervigilance can lead to anxiety, depression, chronic pain, and poor physical outcomes like heart attacks and pulmonary disease. One of the primary countervailing forces to trauma and stress is breath and movement. Together, they connect our brains to our bodies and engage the parasympathetic nervous system, bringing blood and oxygen from our extremities back to our core. Not that I knew any of this when I was flying all over God's green earth, sleeping fitfully on planes and trains, tossing and turning in my ratty Hell's Kitchen crash pad or here at home, worrying, always worrying, anxious, depressed, and in constant physical pain. Little wonder I, like so many of us, self-medicated. It wasn't until early last year when my friend and friends and neighbors guest, Craig Mullaney, showed me after a long, cold, painful run through Baltimore's Inner Harbor, how his Peloton app was loaded with stretching and yoga classes. I wondered how it might feel if I did yoga for a week straight, and so I gave it a shot. The answer was transformational. My sore and stiff muscles began to ease. The brain fog began to lift. I felt more alive, more awake and present in my own life. I gained courage, confidence, and self-love. I practice yoga nearly every day since. My wife, Abby, began pitching me yoga way back in the early aughts, but I demurred. I thought I'd look clumsy and awkward, but my protesting grew tired and I relented, which is when I met Kirtan in a dark yoga studio on Central Park South. Not only did he make me feel welcome, but soon he'd enlisted me to play my guitar during Shavasana. We even hung out after class to talk about deep and simple things like marriage and fatherhood. Rare over the last 16 months or so has been the down dog that I didn't think of Kirtan. It had been nearly 10 years or so since we'd last hung out together in New York. And so I asked him to join me here. In the intervening years, Kirtan has become a husband and a father himself and returned with his young family to his native California. He shared tales of his upbringing in a Venice Beach Hare Krishna ashram, talked about how painful football and rugby injuries led him to yoga, and how even as he led others through a deep and sacred practice, he was hurting inside too. Throughout our conversation, and as we said goodbye and pledged to stay connected, I was reminded again and again that we are all students and teachers in equal terms and that we're all guru and disciple alike, doing our best to balance the imperative to survive and to thrive, day by day, step by step, one deep breath at a time. So I was born in Los Angeles and there was a Hare Krishna temple. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Hare Krishnas. Sure. So this was a Hare Krishna temple right off Venice Boulevard. It's Culver City, Palms area. That's that's where I was born. And I lived there for the first couple years of my life. My mom and dad were both very active in the temple, sort of full-time devotees. It's such an interesting thing because it's this tiny little bubble of 
an ancient form of Hinduism, right smack in the middle of Los Angeles, mm. right? So there's the temple and then there's some ancillary buildings and apartments where there was ashrams and all the devotees living. But one block away, it's everybody else. When I was about three, my, my mom took me to live in London. There's a oh. temple outside of London and it's an old English manor that actually George Harrison had bought and donated to the devotees. So oh, George wow. Harrison um, had met my parents' guru, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, and more than any of the other Beatles, all the Beatles had met him, but he, more than any of the other Beatles, took Prabhupada as his sort of spiritual guru and followed his teachings and had a very, very strong bond with Prabhupada. So we, we lived in the manor there for about a year. We came back to L.A., I think around six years old. And in this ashram, essentially, was in these apartment complexes. There was a married couple would sort of take care of one apartment. So the married couple taking care of us, she was like 16 years old. The guy was like 21. And we're living in an apartment together. All the boys in one room and they're in another bedroom. I loved it because I, it was like summer camp all the time. I'm living with probably like six yeah. or eight of my best friends, all sort of my age. We do everything together, literally. We're showering together. We're going to the temple together. Then we're eating together. Then we're in academic classes together. Then we're going to play in parks around Los Angeles together. And then we're going to bed together. The first temple service is 4.30 in the morning every day, chanting and, and mantra. Or we would have a kirtan, which is more like a musical celebration. We would do that. And then there was japa or japa chanting. You have these beads and you chant 108 times. It's, it's also uh, a form of yoga or mantra yoga. And then we'd have more kirtan. And then we'd have a lecture on one of the ancient Indian scriptures. We'd have to sit there for like 45 minutes, 50 minutes. This is like six in the morning. Getting wow. lectured on metaphysics every day. I didn't grow up with, with asana. I, didn't, I never I had never done a downward dog and never none of that stuff. Although it, in hindsight, I really wish we had. I had a great time though, but it's, it is so bizarre. And yet beyond Watsika Boulevard, one block to the left or the right, the world is going on without us. Yeah. And buzzing around Western culture style, like on steroids. Right. And we had no televisions. We had no uh, magazines. We didn't read newspapers. You know, we ate only food made in the kitchen there at the temple. So it was, it was like living in a remote place in India, right in the middle of Los yeah. Angeles. In the middle of one of America's largest cities. It's so far removed from what 99.9% .9 of people have experienced growing up. How did you guys end up there in the first place? So the, the guru, Swami Prabhupada, he came over from India in 1965. He was quite elderly. I think he was maybe 69 at the time. And he came over with a couple dollars in his pocket. He got a free pass on a, on a, you know, a steam liner from Calcutta. And so in 1965, he started, and then he eventually ended up in the Bowery in the Lower East Side. And, oh. you know, he started developing a following there. He would go to Tompkins Square Park, sit underneath the tree, yeah. chant. And the hippies, of course, at the time, the late 60s, by that point, everyone is searching for something else. And so yeah. pretty soon, he, he had developed a pretty strong following, even people like Allen Ginsberg and people like that of Lower East Side, thinking like 67, 68. My dad and my mom were both, well, my, my dad was a, college, a high school dropout 
And he had tried to join the army when he was like 16 because he had run away from home. You know, it was during the Vietnam War. So they took him. Then when they find out how old he was, they kicked him out. Him and him and my uncle, his younger brother, were both living in Isla Vista at the time and doing LSD. They ended up in, in San Francisco. They're both living in Haight-Ashbury and hanging out with the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin. Wow. And, yeah. and like so many people at that time, just looking for something else out of life and, and saying, like, we want something that offers us more. And we're trying to find higher consciousness. My mom was in school in uh, Colorado State, just feeling like this is not it. I need something more. And they were brought to see him. Instantly, it was like, okay, he has all the answers. And we're going to stop everything we've been doing. And we're going to dedicate our entire life to this way of life that he's preaching about. Love for God and service to others. What he was trying to do is take something that was thousands of years old and not dilute it down at all. And saying, okay, you young Western kids who have been taking LSD. Now you live in the temple. The men shave their head. You're going to wear orange robes. You're going to have a strict vegetarian diet. There's no drugs or intoxication. I mean, even at the time, there was no caffeine, no coffee, no Coca-Cola, no chocolate, no illicit sex. Only sex inside of marriage for procreation was allowed or sanctioned. And so Los Angeles ended up becoming the worldwide headquarters where the guru spent a lot of his time. And this was still sort of a small movement at the time. And my dad, for whatever reason, the guru thought he had some good managerial skills and pointed him as the, the temple manager. And there we were. What a stark contrast that sort of asceticism is to what was happening, to your point, you know, a couple blocks to the left and the right. Right, right. So many people at that time were coming from such traumatic family lives. And they were, it wasn't just that they were searching for happiness, but they were coming from such like abusive homes or neglectful parents. And so I don't think you can like one day to the next stop it if you've been a drug user or alcoholic, but the philosophy, the essence was strict, strict asceticism and, you know, standards that were really, really difficult for, for most people, if not all, to live up to, I think. It's interesting the context you provide, which is that this historically is a response to sort of that silent generation that you don't talk about difficult things. You pour yourself a glass of scotch, you know, dad's in charge, like this sort of really patriarchal in my mind, it's a 50s thing, although there's plenty of vestiges of it all over the place. The seeking of something higher is um, indirect response to sort of ultimately a really repressive patriarchy, right? For sure. You know, parents who are unavailable or, or drinking too much or basically what society was telling you is you, you should go to school, get a job get a house, have some kids yeah. and don't complain and don't look too deeply into your feelings and don't talk about your feelings too much. And, and of course the hippies, they want to know part of that. Now I'm a history teacher. I, I still find that period the most fascinating to me and, and also because of my ties to it through my parents, but upheaval, the cultural upheaval and, and the scale of this happening within a couple of years is, is pretty fascinating. It's funny too, because in my sort of mental picture, it goes from this very rigid black and white picture to this just kaleidoscope of diversity and openness and actual color. 
I'm getting chills right now. Our hair is standing on end. I even said something similar to that to my juniors this year. I was teaching U.S. history that period for the very first time. And I was explaining to them, like, the, the 50s, you can think of them as like a small black and white TV. And everybody going about their things. And all of a sudden, come like six, summer of 67, you have this explosion of color and flowers and colorful clothes and music. And it's something hard to even wrap your head around without that stark contrasting of images. Were your parents still able to be present or did the community, because it sounds like the community really was a, well, obviously it was a collective. Everybody was pitching in. It was definitely a blend because, so say in in the ashrams, at least at that time, and I lived in a couple other ashrams in different places afterwards, but say we would go to the ashrams, say Sunday evening, and we would stay there until, you know, like Saturday morning per se. So during the week, our life was all ashram and community teachers. Of course, my mom was at the temple or my dad was at the temple, but it was really about the community. We all ate together, you know, we had class together. So part of this, the whole reasoning, the whole basis for putting your kids in an ashram when they're very young is to actually not have such strong family ties. It's actually, build, mm. the goal is to build stronger ties to God. And that had some very severe repercussions. Not for me so much, but uh, in other places and other ashrams, whereas my mom to this day was, was always very loving and very, very present. And I would see her on the weekends, I'd see her in the temple and all the festivals. How on earth did you pick up football? So in the afternoons, say like 3.30 to 5.30, our teacher, we would get in these, those old like Dodge vans and our teacher would take us to Fire Station Park in Culver City or Sand Dune Hills in Huntington area or Venice Beach or Redondo Beach. So we would have that, that playtime. And I remember one of my teachers, again, this is, I'm probably five, six years old, had a football and we used to go to the park and we would throw the football around and, and we would play soccer. So there was, there was sports already. And, you know, at the temple, at the ashram, like with my brother, we would kick the ball around. So for whatever reason, football was always who I was as a human being, that the competition, the physicality of it was always really appealing to me. Then we moved up to the whole ashram, which was a couple hundred kids. The thought was, well, let's put these kids up in nature and let's, let's try and build an ashram where there's cows to milk and horses to ride and gardens. And, and that was always a big part of uh, Swami Prabhupada's philosophy, like get back to nature and get as many people back to nature and living self-sufficiently as possible. The community in LA had bought this huge ranch up in Three Rivers near Sequoia National Park, like 400 acres and all these all these houses and a like a central lodge that they turned into a temple and pastures. And so they moved us all up there like overnight. That was phenomenal. That was so ideal. Like even though we're still waking up and we have to be at the temple at 4.30 in the morning yeah. and I'm sitting there in my jacket at, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning hearing a meta, another metaphysical lecture while I'm just like bored out of my freaking mind. <laughs> so we would do that and then we would go into classes and have math and english and then in the afternoons we'd go swim in the river or ride horses or go play ambush up in the hills so we just had this massive massive playground and very very little oversight in terms of free playing around this huge 
sort of ranch. So that was a pretty, pretty amazing time. And then for financial reasons that had to close. So parents were faced with a couple of different decisions or options. One was, well, we can just move into Three Rivers, this tiny community, and put our kids in the public school. We could move our entire family to a different place, a different city, a state, and a different temple community. Or we can send our kid to India. And uh, wow. so there's, in my case, the decision made, and I guess I was too young to protest strongly enough. I was only I think, 12 <laughs> years old, was send them to India. Wow. So me and I think three other, at the time, three other boys were sent to India. And this was an ashram in rural India run by the Hare Krishnas. And it was a couple hundred kids, sort of half Westerner, half Indian. Um, and I, I spent almost a year there. And and that was even more austere. I mean, cold showers, four o'clock in the morning, you know, the summertime, it's 110 degrees and we're going swimming in the river. In the wintertime, it's cold and we're hand washing our clothes in the shower. And after a year of that, I'm like, done, done, get me out of here. You weren't feeling that. That was too much. Yeah. I go back to Three Rivers and that's where I started going to public school. So this was my first time in public school. This was seventh grade. And because I had been away from it for a year, that community had already gotten very used to Hare Krishna kids at the school. So they uh, already felt yeah, it in quite yeah. a lot. So it wasn't a huge culture shock for me because I had great friends already in seventh grade and eighth grade and sixth grade and fifth grade. And they embraced us quite well in that community. So public school, living with my mom at home, the full Western life, getting a TV, flag football in the fall, catching up on all the sitcoms and stuff that I'd never watched. and Right. Getting Americanized. Yeah. Cartoons and finally getting able to watch. I mean, I remember the first time I saw a football game on TV was in Three Rivers. And it was like an acid trip where I was peaking. It just blew my mind. I was like, (laughs) they're in pads. And he just went long for a bomb pass. And I was just obsessed. And I'm like, mom, I want a jersey. Well, no, no, because we were still in the ashram at the time. You know, mom, can you get me a subscription to Sports Illustrated? No, no. You know, we still had no TV and no magazines and newspapers. and, And so when I finally had the chance to, I just gorged on all the Baby Ruth bars and Coca-Colas and and television and everything that I could. So from then on, my life was pretty much what any like Western kid would experience through seventh grade and high school. And I hesitate to ask, but where's dad? Well, he sort of left the movement actually when I was quite young and I, I don't remember it. So that the trauma of that Mm-hmm. Um, isn't very strong. Now, in my mm-hmm. older brother, it's it's a little different. But he realized this lifestyle or this philosophy, it's not me. He tried to hang out in LA for a while and be part of it or still help run some of the business aspects of it. And I didn't really grow up with him as a dad. I, I knew mm-hmm. about him. So it's this really weird thing. He ended up leaving to Thailand when I was very, very young so many people knew my dad and everywhere I went, they're like, oh, your dad, how's he doing? He's awesome. Right, He's so right, cool. Right. He's this and that. And I'm like, well, all I know of him is what you're telling me. And I, I have a few yeah. vague memories of him, but I didn't really have an experience of growing up with my dad. And for a long time, I felt like if you never had something, you don't realize yeah. the loss of it isn't as great. 
you realize as you get older, those things start coming up more and more. Yes. Yeah. More potent. Yeah. I sort of still in some weird way idolized him because he was thought of as this founding devotee and this great leader. And he had been Prabhupada's right-hand man. And he had done all these great things in the temple and in, you know, the handful of years. But to me, it's like, well, okay, I guess he's my dad, but I don't know him. He, I think he's somewhere over there doing, I don't know what. It's just this another weird dichotomy of sort of knowing him, but only knowing him through the stories and the questions of other adults. He, he wasn't around all through high school. His younger brother was my uncle. And my uncle was like the quintessential super cool uncle, comes and goes yeah. in life. But every time you see him, you just have these amazing times and yeah. amazing foods and adventures. And he was like this larger than life figure, you know, and awesome. traveling the world and doing all sorts of stuff in Afghanistan and India, and then wow. living on a, on a farm in Hawaii, and then teaching for the governor in, in Brazil. And so <laughs> he just had this fascinating life. And I tried to model my life on his, yeah. which worked for a while as a yoga teacher, but I had to make a lot of changes. He was the kind of person who you know, never had a credit card and didn't have bank accounts and never held like a typical job and traveled and was so independent and free. And so he was sort of my role model and more like my father growing up, even though he yeah. came and went. He lived in Oregon. He lived in Hawaii. He lived in Brazil. He was here. He was there. He was hard to keep track of. I don't mean to harp on football. I just distinctly recall you showed some promise and capability. And at some point it just became an untenable thing. And yeah. that had some bearing with how you found your way to yoga. I played high school football. This was a small public school near Three Rivers. Because it was a small public school, I did get to play both ways, offensive line and inside linebacker. Starting back then, I was doing things to my body without being prepared enough and eating well and, and lifting you know, and I worked at a pizza place all those years and I was just eating copious amounts of cheese and yeah. pizzas. And I used to drink like the, the gallons of Mountain Dew. And even after football practice, we would go to the mini mart and get big jugs yeah. of soda and donuts. Totally. That was our post-workout yeah. meal. And I was doing things with my body in a very, very aggressive way. And this goes back to maybe some of the angst of not having a father and, and all those things and just putting that violence, channeling that violence mm. on the field, but doing things to my body that it wasn't ready to do or capable of doing because I wasn't prepared enough. So in high school, I started getting stingers. It's probably the most intense pain I've ever felt. It mm. feels like your arm is on fire. For me, it was a nerve that goes through the neck, down the arm into your hand. So I started getting those in high school. And literally, I remember one time coming out of the game and my arm is on fire. My arm is on fire. My mom, with limited resources we had, she'd take me to the chiropractor, she'd get me deep tissue massage, and, and this was money that we didn't have, but she knew how much football meant to me, so she was going to mm. do whatever she could to support me. I get to UCLA, I'm a freshman, my brother, he's in his third year there, I won't say a junior, <laughs> <laughs> but he's now in his third year there, and my brother was always a much bigger, stronger version of me, and, and definitely more intelligent, he was always like one of the most brilliant guys, still is that people know, and so he had played rugby at UCLA and was playing. But he, he was dropped out of school at the time, but he took me to practice. So I thought like rugby's a way for me to continue using my body. And I love tackling. I just love the physicality of that. 
And uh, the coach asked him, well, what position is your brother going to play? And my brother said, uh, I don't know, prop. In the scrum, you have eight people who line up on each side and they just yeah. smash each other as hard as they can. Prop are the first three. So you, you have a conglomeration of eight people and eight people hitting each other as hard as they can over and over. And that's just one aspect of rugby. So yeah, it's just the beginning of the, yeah. Yeah, that's just a start. And so I remember sometimes like walking home from games and I could not even stand up straight. I was hunched over because, you know, you're hunched over and your back is taking all this yeah, trauma. Yeah, yeah. And again, I was not eating healthy enough. I wasn't weightlifting well enough. I wasn't preparing, yeah. but I was still good. And then my sophomore year, I had a, a shoulder injury. I dislocated one of my shoulders. And then my junior year, I dislocated another. Playing flag football for the fraternity, I had, I had torn a ligament in my knee. So this is that moment where, you know, I'm 21 years old. I have to go to bed on my back with pillows underneath both arms because I have two separated shoulders, <sighs> pinched nerve in my neck, problematic knee. And I'm like, wow, well... I guess my days of playing rugby are over, you know, I'm, I'm 21 years old. I'm living in a lot, a lot of pain. And I was happened to be sitting outside of Kirkhoff hall on UCLA campus, the lawn there. And a girl told me about a yoga class she was doing and it was offered through the world arts and cultures program Wednesday afternoons, like one to four o'clock, a three hour seminar and part philosophy, part didactic and part movement. Uh, yeah. so I signed up for that. And in that class, I, I recall there was probably 45 to 50 people and, you know, probably like 35 of those are young ladies. And I'm like, yeah, I really like this yoga thing. That's where the seed of the physical practice was planted. And the teacher who was there at the time, her name is Shiva Rea, who is now one of the most famous teachers in the world and has been for a long time. But that was who introduced me to asana. And over the years, I've gotten to see her and do workshops with her and retreats with her and reconnect over and over. I've yeah. connected with her in India and Greece and Brazil. It's so nice that that connection, I started with her when I was 21. And here we are, you know, 27 years later. And if I were to drive up to LA, I could probably take a workshop with her on a certain day, you know? What is the historical context of yoga there's jnana yoga, which is the intellect for the people like my dad, who are very intellectual. Mm -hmm. They want to be singing and dancing like crazy hippies on the street, yeah. you know, singing to God. Bhakti yoga would have to be viewed as one of the most ancient forms of yoga in India. That's the form still all over India today. Wherever you are, you can go into temples and you'll see the pujari doing the service to the particular deity and people there singing and chanting and people doing little have little altars, whether it's at their tea stand or at their rickshaw or in their home and doing little offerings to their deities, to their gods every single day. And that's what we practiced as Hare Krishnas. In the more ancient scriptures and what most Western historians think of as one of the most ancient scriptures, the Rig Veda, which they might put at say 2,500 or 3,000 years old, even in those scriptures, they're making allusions or references to yoga. As with many cultures, things were passed down orally. The tradition was teacher to disciple. And so we feel like that goes back possibly 5,000, 10,000, who knows, 12,000 years. The physical practice of yoga, it is a pretty fascinating thing because we have a couple manuals that are not that old. And then if we think about probably the most influential yoga teacher 
that's shaped the physical practice of yoga worldwide. His name was Krishnamacharya. He was a scholar, a brilliant scholar, and he he got all the degrees and all the different disciplines of yoga, scripture, Sanskrit, the ancient Vedic language. And then he took on this pilgrimage. He was told, if you really want to learn the physical practice of yoga, you got to go find so-and-so up in the Himalayas. Uh, He's living in South India, right? Before modern transportation. So he embarks on this journey. I'm going to go find this yogi up in the mountains in the Himalayas, finds him and ends up living under the care of this yogi in a cave in the Himalayas, as yoga has been done up there for many, many years, and spends, I believe, six or seven years studying under this yogi. Right now, this yogi, of course, there's no drawings of him. Obviously, there's, there's there's no pictures of him. He never wrote anything. But Krishnamacharya said that he learned thousands of postures and all the breathing techniques and cleansing techniques from this person. But also in other places that I've read, Krishnamacharya writes that some of these poses came to him in visions. Oh. So I think the physical practice of yoga, we have that element. This comes from a yogi up in the Himalayas who had had a teacher and had a teacher and had a teacher. Yeah. Combined with sort of these divine awakenings in Krishnamacharya and many others, because this was happening yeah. in other places in India. And then yogi sort of meeting in the alleyways and saying, oh, what are you doing? Oh, like I just did this new breathing. Like I can stop my heart rate for 10 minutes. And, and we can't think of it as like one river that has right. flowed from right. one place. It's all these different streams and tributaries that have mingled yeah. and spread and mingled and spread and mingled and spread and continue evolving. And then the last element to it is what some historians feel is the, the legacy or the impact of British colonialism on yoga and sort of British or Western style calisthenics that the yogis were seeing and saying, oh, that looks interesting. Like, so there's the big debate about the chaturanga, like the push-up. Is that a Western style thing? And, and the historians who have taken a real hard look at that, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that, yes, the yogis adapted even some of those calisthenics type things into the practice. Come full circle after college, I go to Brazil. I'm an English teacher for five years in Brazil. And then one of my uncle's friends in Brazil suggests like, hey, Kirtan, why don't you be a yoga teacher? Why don't you come up to my ashram, which I had been visiting and I was getting more and more into it. Why don't you come up to my ashram, live here for a couple months and become a yoga teacher? And I was 28 at the time. And that light bulb went off in my mind. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, (laughs) yes. And so then became this process of trying to go back and relearn everything that I'd learned as a kid, all the philosophy we used to, I used to read and write in Sanskrit. I used to know these scriptures in and out. And uh, then I had to go back and try and learn all of that stuff and figure out not only all the philosophy, but now study the asana part, which we hadn't studied, and then try and figure out how my personal life if you're having a family or trying to run a business and how do all those things collide? And I think that's a, another fascinating pathway. Like how can you be a true yogi in a material world and make a living? And so the way we were brought up going back to that aesthetic lifestyle, you know, we didn't have money. We were very, very renounced, no material possessions, just the minimum, minimum needed to survive. So that was programmed into me and ingrained in me so that 
you know, I start becoming a yoga teacher and yes, I have to make a living, but how much do I charge? And no, that's Mm -hmm. much. And, and having all these weird issues around money, which I still have some to this day. I would imagine. Yeah. Trying to balance out this programming or the learning I had as a kid with the realities of living in New York City or Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, with the teachings, with trying to be a yoga teacher and all my shortcomings as a human being, with all the aspirations and all this beliefs that had put into me as a kid about this is what you have to do. You, You know, you have to be in control of your senses and you can't drink and you can't have illicit sex and, and trying to like sort through all of this. It was really a, you know, a cluster F U C K. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. It's on my list, really the sort of reconciling of those two worlds really. Cause this world just, I mean, it's in some ways, isn't that different from the fifties one we were talking about a second ago. I mean, the expectations broadly speaking and simplified are still kind of the same, yeah. get the job, stay on the track, keep in line, you know? Right. It does become that thing. Like how do I navigate this world of helping people, but not like, becoming a martyr and, and sacrificing my own physical or mental health or, or right, my financial right. health to do the yeah. service. I think I may have mentioned I'm working on a book and a movie and the tagline of the book, at least, I don't know if it'll stick is like how I had the job of my dreams and it almost killed me. I don't know right. if I would have actually died, but I know that I was killing myself inside. They were telling us when we were three years old, four years old, five years old, that's what's going to happen. Mm. In the material world, when you chase money and you chase career and you're going to end up miserable. So in a way I had the opposite because I grew up every day hearing that, like don't get involved in the material world and you don't, you don't have to have money and dedicate yourself to God because otherwise you're just going to find suffering. So I grew up with that. But then when I started in this sort of career world, say like New York city yoga, I was like, well, I have to make money. This is what I want to do. This is all I want to do with my life. But I have to make money and I have to figure out how to relate to money better these days. But also when you're, you know, if you're 35 or 40 years old and you can't pay your rent and you, you got bills, it's like you can't be renunciified or a renunciate and you can't live in a Himalayan cave and go into Manhattan and teach yoga. It's like you have to figure out a way to reconcile that and, and try and be happy and try and try and navigate that. And so I think I avoided yeah. doing that in the way that you did, but each of us has our own lessons and, and we've all been programmed or socialized in certain ways. And, and the learning is never ending and, and the, the yeah. lessons are, are very, very difficult sometimes. Yeah. So there's something in between both, right? Because what I was missing is the sense of spiritual grounding and community and connectedness and meaning and purpose. And I would suspect you had a greater sense of that through your 20s and 30s and and so forth. But what you might have been missing is a sense of, I don't know, economic agency. But it's worth noting that it was always at some kind of expense and it tended to be at the expense of the very thing that I'm suggesting you possessed in greater quantity than I, this idea of connectedness, meaning, purpose, spiritual grounding. And at a certain point, I was like, I'm not going to die like this. I, I can't. I'm not going to spend the next 50 years of my life feeling like I'm moving further and further and further and further away from that. I don't want to make anyone think like I was this evolved yogi because I had a lot of angst and a lot of anger. And in college, I did a lot of drugs and I got in a lot of fights 
And even when I went to Brazil, I, I left for right out of college. And the allure of travel and beautiful women or women and money was always a way to travel or you know go on dates. And yeah. for me, they're coming back into yoga. And then little by little, I started in Brazil and then New York City, trying to put those parts together. That's my background. Then I had all this angst and all this drug abuse. And now I'm finding yoga again. I'm trying to relearn all the philosophy that I learned as a kid. I'm trying to learn mm -hmm. all the asanas embody the, the physical part that I never learned. I'm trying to reconcile living in the material world with my beliefs that have been planted so deeply in me about mm -hmm. money, never had savings accounts, never had credit cards. I thought I'm going to be a renter and I'm going to teach yoga until the day I die. Yeah. No 401k, no savings until, you know, I, I met my wife and, you know, yeah. that, that took a while for her to try and reprogram me. Like, no, you have to start saving and, and no, you have to start thinking about your future and you have to, well, someday we, we're going to buy and, and all those yeah. things in it. She's a phenomenal woman, but without her, a figure like that, I potentially could have been, you know, still living in New York City, teaching yoga and, and wondering how I'm going to pay rent in the summertime when my wealthy clients are in Aspen and the Hamptons. I appreciate you saying that. The idea that you were smashing into so many things is fascinating, right? Yeah. And that you had this real appetite, which I share with you. And I think yeah. for me, it's this idea of filling some hole, this God-shaped hole is what Martin Buber would call it, something, this, this void. And then coming to the epiphany that, oh, nothing's ever going to fill it yeah. except staying present with, with it. And I don't know, letting it sort of heal itself, which is maybe what's happening now if I'm lucky. Yeah. You know, I think about sort of, you know, my older brother and he helped form me so in so many ways and I'm grateful for him. He made me really, really tough. Like I said, he was always bigger and stronger and mm. he suffered and still suffers much more from the trauma of like being separated from his dad and his mom yeah. at younger ages and when he was aware of it. And he's never really recovered from that. So there was periods growing up, you know, when once we were not in ashrams, you know, when, we were, when I was in junior high and high school, when he took that out on me. So I learned how to fight and wrestle with someone much bigger and stronger than me. So because yeah, you had to. Yeah. yeah. And because of all this angst of childhood and India exacerbated by alcohol and drugs like it, that would come mm. out in violence and on the yeah. field, it's sanctioned. And then, you know, off the field, that was fights at college with like the fraternity next door and, and so many fights. And in the end, what would happen is feeling like there's this emptiness in my soul, like I'm hungover. I hit that guy last night because he was mouthing off to us next door. But, you know, eventually you realize like your soul is hurting. And after too many nights of probably, you know, having done drugs all night long or more than one or two days in a row, it's like yeah. my soul is hurting. I really, I want my soul to shine. I want my yeah. soul to shine so that it helps other people. So that's what was really driving me to yoga and become a yoga teacher. But still, it wasn't overnight and it's still that battle inside is still happening. The two guys on the two shoulders are still talking at each other. And I'm still yeah, like, yeah. but now I'm, I'm a dad and I'm married and I have kids. So the little red guy, he's had to shut up. Yeah, and he, that's right. But it's still there, you know. I just got really moved as you were sharing that because I, I thought to myself, well, it's practice. And I swear to God, I started learning the idea that from you, man, of course, you're not going to crack it on day one or day 30 or day 90. Right. And, and you might have setbacks. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's a repetition and it's a long-term commitment and it's not immediate and it's not a return on investment based, you know, it's right. abstract and you have to have like this faith in this invisible long-term thing. And the only way there is here, you know, the yoga teachers, even that they're as messed up as anyone else, they're maybe just trying harder to undo all that mess. I really want to get to the bottom of this. I really want to undo the physical or emotional trauma in my life. And, and, and maybe I can help some others doing that. So I think they're trying harder, but too many people put way too much belief. And I don't want to say trust in yoga teachers because very oftentimes that ends up being abused. I'm reminded of the, one of the words you used early, which is humble, right? Which is whether you're talking about yoga or just being human, the essence of being human is flesh. And there are certain just imperatives to biology, right? Procreate, yeah. feed, sleep, whatever, like there's impulses, but then we're humans with this enlightened brain and this sort of wrestling match, you know? Yeah. And to me, I think it goes back to that word of humble, which bro, I've been more humbled in the last 10 years, you know, really since we met, I've been in a lot of ways, the most humbling, which is great and appropriate. And I'm grateful that humility seems like maybe the, the key. We're not better than the animal kingdom. We are a part of the animal kingdom, right? Right. We're not separate from back to the environment we're part of. And that humility, I feel like might be the saving grace is to just try and keep yourself in check. And to your point, when that gets out of check is when stuff starts to go sideways. I forget where it comes from or who said it first, but it's part of our lineage. My parents grew, he had a guru, had a guru, and it goes back hundreds of years or more, but it's to be more humble than a blade of grass. And mm. my parents grew really defined that because he could travel and meet a president or a head of state or famous actors. And, you know, he was living with John Lennon and Yoko for a while in London, but he was so humble and he never accumulated anything. He never wanted fancy cars. He never wore flashy clothes. He was so humble that it never got to him. Even when he's sort of getting all this adulation from thousands of devotees all over the world, it was always, and I tried to do this as a teacher, where it's, it's a practice where it's like whatever compliments and whatever, like, oh, that was great or blah, 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 blah. You're like, okay, take it. Thank you. But then send it up, send it up to your teacher, send it up to, to God, send it up to a higher place. Because if you try and take that on, then your head starts to get big. And the whole business of yoga is one of the things that I'm glad now that I'm not part of it because to get Instagram followers and constantly yeah. people post pictures of themselves every single day. I'm like, I, yeah. I don't want to do that. Part of it is my personality and part of it was the way I was taught as a child, the humility and yoga is not about making money. It's not about followers because followers, like going back to those gurus who had hundreds of, or thousands or some, some cases, these gurus, millions of followers, what good did it get them? They got corrupted by that power and by the greed and by the wealth and whatever, and they fell back down to basically to nothing. So to have followers, and, and I remember sitting, having lunch with my friend when I first moved to New York City, she was like, oh, I can see you having so many followers. And, <laughs> and that word, I never really liked it because I had seen what had happened when my parents grew, died, and, and all the Western gurus, they sort of took power, these 11 gurus in different continents and different places in the world. And most of them ended up being corrupt in, in many ways and did a lot of crazy stuff. So I lived through and saw firsthand what having followers can do 
and having too much power and adulation can do. Yet, I wanted to be a very successful, famous yoga teacher, and yet I probably couldn't handle that. I probably could not handle traveling the world and and just teaching hundreds of people all over the place and either would wreck your family, as it did for some teachers, or just be womanizing or, or whatever it would be. I was promiscuous as heck in my 20s and 30s, but it didn't have anything to do with anything other than I just wanted to feel loved. I know that now. Like I almost knew that intellectually then. It was just some leftover thing that had something to do with, you know, my parents divorcing, my dad not being home, my mom not being super duper present because she was busy trying to feed us and so forth. And I think I just figured out the first time some girl was like, oh, he's cute. Oh, maybe I am worthy of love. But the closest I've ever been to feeling worthy of love has been in the last six months to a year when I got honest with myself instead of chasing something external and just said, well, you're actually pretty wounded and that's okay because we all are if we're being honest. And to your point about shining, which is what moved me earlier, I just, you know, that cliche that maybe the thing that is my great, what that I perceive as my greatest weakness can be my greatest strength because the thing that's brought me the greatest joy is working around Mr. Rogers and Mr. Rogers is talking about vulnerable things. He's not boasting. He's not being hubristic. He's not endeavoring towards followers to your point, right? He's just trying to say, we're all human. We all hurt. And here are some strategies that you can cultivate to not hurt yourself or hurt others. Seemed like a pretty reasonable approach to me. As you were talking there about Mr. Rogers, I think the philosophy in and of itself, it's both revolutionary and yet it's it's so basic. But yeah. too many people are talking the talk. Mr. Rogers actually embodied it and lived it. And you know, yeah. in the yoga community, yeah. there's a whole lot of people, they can say the things, they're regurgitating stuff inside. Like I still have all my yeah. own demons I'm facing and I'm still trying to work through all my own shit. I appreciate that. And I put a lot of time and effort in trying to become that, but I'm not that person that you, that you think. I just think you're describing the human experience. Bravo for saying that out loud in this, in the context of this conversation. But also I just think, man, the more of us who can say that out loud, when you can live truthfully, warts and all, so to speak, you give other people permission to do the same. Especially in, in the, those earlier days in New York City, and you know, I had been teaching in Brazil for five years and I had all the philosophy as a kid, but I was still a New York hustle, like trying to make it. What was the tension? How did you feel? There was so many experiences like, you know, the new yoga studio is opening and like, why don't they want to hire me? Or, oh, they're giving that time slot to that teacher. And it took me a while to get comfortable enough in my skin. I think this really started happening once I'd moved to California and I'm older you know, I'm now engaged or married, about to have a kid or have a kid of being much more vulnerable and being able to show my warts in class and saying, look, I'm working on this just as much as everybody. And I think that that took me a while to get to because in New York City, I know in the early years, it was such a farce, me trying to live up to this image or projection of who I thought I needed to be. I had this Christmas party and a friend of my girlfriend posted a picture of me with a drink in my hand. I'm like, no, take that down off Facebook. No, I don't right. want people seeing that. You know, that's part of me. I'm grappling with my demons and I still like to have a drink. And sometimes that's after class or sometimes that's at parties. And I got to California already and now I'm in my 40s. I think being vulnerable and being able to talk in classes like that, I think that was a huge relief. Like I'm not trying to live up to any expectations anymore. I'm not trying to pretend to be this enlightened yogi. I'm just, 
I'm just me. I'm just a human being struggling day to day, just like the rest of you. What would you share with that six, seven, eight, nine year old little boy? What kind of wisdom would you share that might give him a little insight to move through the world in a different way than, than you were actually able to? I sometimes think about that little boy and how, how fragile in some ways he was because, you know, you, you live with your friends, you're having a great time, but you're not living with your family. And, you know, like when I lived in India, you know, lived, it was, it was nuts to do that, you know, when you're 12 years old and there were people that are younger than me, there are people older, but, you know, I, I ended up getting very emaciated in India and, and just the, the fragility of like that, that young boy, but to not lose the, the kindness in your heart. Mm. It's so hard to do because, you know, so many people could mistreat you and, you know, you're going to face any number of challenges, but how do you retain that essence? Aren't we all trying to find like that inner child, like that inner child mm. that is loving and that is kind, the inner child that wants to give the extra bite to their sister or brother, just hang on to that. I think for most of us, you know, we can find a way back to find that same kindness and innocence, you know, that we had. It comes back to safety. And one of the things we usually felt around that age or didn't right. is a sense of safety. Yep. And in order to feel that kindness, I think we need to feel safe. And the only way we can feel safe is to really have this kind of conversation at scale. Stop with the quipping and take, tearing each other down and just start with we're humans. It's hard. I find myself, you know, with my daughter who's three or my son's five, constantly just intuitively saying you're safe with me you're safe with me it's okay yes like we were walking on the pier yeah. yesterday and my daughter's looking down through the slats and seeing the ocean I'm like it's okay you're safe yeah. with me and and i think in a lot of ashrams and a lot of religious communities kids were not safe and kids were overlooked and it's not just the Hare krishnas and a number of number of cults and communities and sects and stuff kids were not safe and, it, and it's had disastrous consequences. And, and yeah. I think in terms of breaking the cycle and being better dads, it's creating that safety and making them feel safe. And I just, yeah. hopefully not screwing them up the way we got screwed up. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborsshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Lifelong friends.